0: the ideas, the leaders, the
1: lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, with your co-hosts, Ed Lay and Thomas Mulhern, this is Global Denmark.
0: Hello and welcome to the Global Denmark Podcast. Explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. We had the pleasure of sitting down with Helen Russell, journalist, speaker, author of Leap Year, Gone Viking, Atlas of Happiness, and the international bestseller The Year of Living Danishly. In this wide ranging conversation, we explore a variety of subjects, including what it means to live Danishly, how Helen defines happiness before and after coming to Denmark, societal and individual happiness, the benefits of a growth mindset, keys to successful communication, and incorporating happiness approaches from around the world. Without further ado, we bring you Helen Russell.
2: I'm here with my co-host, Thomas Mulhern and Helen Russell. Hello, Helen. How are you today?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
2: Oh, very good, thank you. I just want to dive straight in. Your book, A Year of Living Danishly, was, uh, was permanently on my, my wife's nightstand and I was being quoted to daily around about the time we made the decision to move here to Denmark. So, so firstly, thank you very much for that.
1: You're most welcome.
2: So just to uh, dive right in with a question, what does it mean to live Danishly?
1: I think for me, it it took a while to discover it. I I don't think it's something that I knew straight away, but I guess as soon as I did arrive, I realised that it was different to the way I had been living beforehand. So I tried to really break down what it was Danes were doing differently in every area of life, from parenting to the workplace, to the way they ate, the way they went about their leisure activities. And I guess that there are a few things. There's, of course, the huger, which still as a non-Dane, I get laughed at for my pronunciation of it. That was apparent as, as soon as I arrived. And then I guess the work-life balance plays a, a big part and the trust and national pride. I think we weren't used to seeing flags everywhere where I come from. I was in London for 12 years and you certainly wouldn't see flagpoles in people's gardens, but that was a thing here. So um, there, there is not just one thing. I think there are a, there's a combination of things that it certainly took me at least a year to begin to get my head around. I'm afraid it's not one quick answer on that one.
0: So let's uh, take a step back. Helen. Uh, First of all, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I want to explore your journey both before you arrived in Denmark and then your observations immediately after. We hear a lot about culture shock, especially within the first six months. Did you experience a culture shock when you began your year living Danishly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There weren't so many internationals when I first came. So I had been living and working for 12 years as a journalist in London. I had no intention of leaving until out of the blue, my husband was offered his dream job working for Lego in Denmark. But it wasn't Copenhagen, it wasn't the Denmark that I'd sort of heard of, although I'd never visited. It was rural Uland. It was Billund. So this was a whole other kettle of fish. And I was initially not keen on the idea at all. But we had both been working long hours in the UK. I was editor of MarieClaire.co.uk. I had a big job. I had a lot of events to go to outside of work. We were ill a lot of the time. We were tired. We were stressed. We've been trying to start a family for years, but it was never quite happening. And we were going through a lot of fertility treatment. And Denmark had just been voted the happiest country in the world and in the UN World Happiness Report. So we became fascinated by this. I did at least. And I thought, well, goodness, if I can't get happier there, where can I? And something (laughs) felt like it had to change. You know, I was only 33. I couldn't, you know, there wasn't really an opportunity to be burnt out already at 33. I had to try to make a change in some way so we we decided that we would give it a year as you say and throw myself into living danishly go freelance so i had to start from scratch in that respect and so we moved in the in the middle of winter we packed all of our worldly belongings into 132 boxes and shipped them across the north sea and arrived in bleak bleak midwinter and didn't know anyone and i had no job and i didn't speak the language And then my husband left to go to work at 7.30 a.m. And I was all on my own. And I certainly worried that I'd perhaps made the biggest mistake of my life. Yes, it was a huge, huge culture shock.
2: And do you feel like you've been able to uh, adopt some of the Danish values? Which, Which ones have you really managed to embrace? And have they had an impact on your happiness, do you believe?
1: Yeah, so we certainly had to take on... A lot of the the Danish values. For a start, my husband was suddenly from working, you know, all of the hours God sends. Suddenly, everybody was shutting down their computers at four pm, and he was coming home. So, I followed suit a little bit and I worried quite a lot when I first started I was just you know starting up a freelance career I thought maybe a bat light would go on over the North Sea and people would demand my services but I I did shut down my computer and I had the real wake-up call that I was not as important as I thought I was you know I could (laughs) shut down the computer I could not check my emails and nobody died it was fine. I think once we had this work life balance a bit more in check, we had more time for leisure pursuits. We could take up hobbies. There's a a, a massive emphasis on lifelong learning and hobbies in Denmark and uh, fitness and getting out there. So we were able to do that a lot more. And also, we had more time to see friends. Now, obviously, we didn't have any friends when we first arrived. So we had to work on that. We had to work on making time to create new relationships, create new bonds and put ourselves out there in a way that we hadn't been used to, which wasn't massively easy with Danes who can be as, um, I guess, less gregarious than perhaps we might think of Australians or Americans. They can be a little bit more like Londoners in their temperament and approach to making new friends. So we had to be fairly proactive on that front. And then Eventually, spoiler alert if anyone has not read The Year of Living Danishly, I became pregnant, and suddenly that really. It changed my mindset because children seem to be prioritized in many areas of Danish life in a way that they're really not in the UK and in the world I've been used to. And also the Danish trust came to the fore. You know, you see people leaving their babies yeah. outside to nap. There is a trust that no one will steal them. I mean there are a lot of hard work. Why would you? But um, suddenly I had to kind of get on <laughs> with that as well. And I think the trust plays into a lot of areas of Danish life, people don't mind paying their taxes as much as they might elsewhere because there's a trust that the government will spend their money wisely and that your neighbours will also pay their tax. And there's more of a trust that because everyone is looked after, at least in theory, you're not worried that your neighbour going to rob you to put food on the table, for example. So there's just less fear. And if you're less anxious a lot of the time, you have the headspace to be happy. So that made a big difference for us and really cemented our decision to, to stay a little longer.
0: Okay. That's really fascinating you say that because I talk with a lot of expatriates or repatriates, and I can hear from your story that one of the attraction factors was this notion that Denmark was the happiest or one of the happiest countries on earth. And it seemed like at that time in your life, you were seeking happiness, if Mm. we could say like that. Now, in terms of expectations, did you have a concrete formula to, I am going to do X and Y when I arrive in Denmark to achieve this happiness? Or were you looking at it more from an internal perspective of I need to work on myself in this new geographical area.
1: I know. I mean, having a plan of any sort would have been a fine and wise and prudent idea. We did not do that. We are not brilliant at that. So it was more that I arrived panicked. What am I going to do? Started setting up my freelance career, started noticing what was different in Denmark compared to my life in the UK. And so I started writing about this for a column in the Telegraph newspaper in the UK and somehow managed to convince The Guardian to let me be a Scandinavia correspondent for them. So I was finding out more about the culture from a professional point of view, which is great because naturally I am not, you know, I'm fairly fearful as many Brits are and possibly many Danes about you know going out there but I had to be a bit more intrepid than I might naturally be because I was doing it for work so I had this purpose and once once it became clear that there was an interest in this and there was an appetite for this I decided to be fairly I guess fairly organized about it and look at every area of Danish life so I just set out to interview as many Danes expats politicians economists historians sociologists work-life balance experts you name it as I could to, to just see from their point of view what it was that made Denmark different and then filter it through I guess my own experiences but I wanted there to be lessons that I could share for the rest of the world for people who couldn't uproot their life for example so it's
0: really interesting how yeah. you how you tied together your own professional project with your personal narrative at the same time in some respects being able to take a step back look at it from a rational perspective I can imagine going through different emotional states through your own integration journey
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think in that respect, you know, my journalist training was, was very helpful and I have always enjoyed, you know, being an outsider is a fascinating opportunity for a lot of people watching and you're never more of an outsider than when you arrive in a strange country and you don't speak the language. So, yes, it gave me plenty of opportunity to observe and learn. And, and you know, with this beginner's eyes, I guess I had everything was new to me. So I was able to analyze it and take it all in.
0: Helen, if you were to define happiness before you got to Denmark and after your time in Denmark, how would you define it to someone?
1: Oh, great question. I guess uh, living in the London media bubble for a long time It's a very strange place. And I think I knew I very much wanted children from personally from the age of about 26. A a switch flicked in my brain and and came something that was very important to me. So seemingly not being able to have them was very upsetting and very stressful, especially working in all female office where people were going off on maternity leave all the time and crying while signing leaving cards. That was fun. Um, fun. So I think I wanted children. I wanted to be successful in my career, but at that point, I guess I thought that that meant working all the hours and trying to earn all the money and having a job title that my mum could tell people about. And they'd think, oh, isn't isn't Helen doing well? Um, <laughs> and, you know, having a nice house and, and having things. And I think from living Danishly, I have And researching into happiness, I guess, I have become aware intellectually that, of course, you know, we are more happy when we invest in experiences rather than stuff. I know that intellectually. I've read the research. I've spoken to experts, for example. But I also feel like I know that intuitively a bit now. You know, I can spend time walking in the forest and I will feel better than if I spend time in the shops. Um, I guess now walking is very important to me, getting outside, goodness. I mean, enjoying the sunshine when it deigns to appear in Denmark I really make the most of the great <laughs> those three days a year those magical yeah. days. well we yeah I mean last summer was amazing and I I love mm. being by the ocean in Denmark you know you're never more than 50 kilometers from the sea here so I go paddle boarding and I like being in a place where most people are looked after that's really important to me and of course it's not perfect and of course there are huge challenges as with any country but I like being able to walk around feeling safe feeling like the person who if I can afford to go to a coffee shop the person who serves me my coffee has a decent standard of living that i like that that's important to me and i think happiness now is i for the atlas of happiness i looked into what happiness meant to other cultures and there's a great south african term ubuntu which is sort of i am because you are and this idea that you cannot be happy unless the people around you are happy which now living Danishly makes a lot more sense. You know, we have to look after those who are less fortunate. We have to look after the people who need it most in our community. And I feel like living in Denmark, although, goodness, it's expensive, it's sort of worth it to make sure that people are taken care of. And then everybody gets to have a decent standard of life. I may not have as much money as I might have where I'm working in London, but it's worth that payoff for everyone to just be a bit happier.
2: Helen? Denmark, we're really kind of, it feels like really carrying this label of of happiest country in the world. And the stress figures, the depression figures, even the suicide rates in Denmark seem to to be kind of counterintuitive to this point. In your book, The Atlas of Happiness, you mention the Bhutan approach to, to happiness and how they accept that, that sadness and misery and things like that are, are part and parcel of the human experience. Mm. Do you think that this, this label of happiness sometimes it can be difficult to live up to and actually have a downside to it as well as the, the upside?
1: Yeah, I I do appreciate that there is, um, you know, it's if you feel unhappy in a country that's supposed to be the happiest country in the world, you're going to feel pretty rotten about that. And you're going to feel worse about that. I'm actually doing a TED Talk next month looking at that exact thing, you know, that we need to all need to get better at learning to be sad better almost because it's an inevitable part of our lives. So, yeah, I do think in Northern Europe, we are generally pretty poor at embracing the breadth of our emotions and they're all important and studies show you know from neuroscience to you know well-being analysis over the decades that we have to be in, more in touch with our emotions and not push down or repress those negative ones like frustration or anger or feeling yeah. a bit depressed and i think i was really interested in in the year of Living danishly i spoke to geneticists and i spoke to suicide charities and um researchers in Denmark and the peaks I'm sure you've come across for suicide in Denmark are winter I believe I think it's January and then also springtime because it's meant to be when you know the fresh shoots are coming out the sun is starting to appear again everything's meant to be better and if you're not feeling better you feel really let down you feel as though well great everyone else is suddenly on the up why aren't I and so I think it is challenging certainly I guess also, I I often point out that whereas in the UK, we've been fairly slow to really invest in mental health in the workplace, uh, it was still when I left the UK, it was still a massive stigma to admit to mental health problems in the workplace for fear that it would jeopardize future career prospects. But in Denmark, I feel as though employers have been more in touch with that for some time now. And it's totally accepted that you can take time off that you can get help so it's perhaps reported a little more i think that is, is a thing as well so people are are more open to the idea of getting help for that in denmark than they might be elsewhere
0: i think when we look at happiness i just wrote an article entitled the happiest country on earth for all where i was trying to outline that in my experience there are some groups, for example, expatriates like yourself, like Ed and I, and many, many others, as the number is growing, that lack this network when they come to Denmark and this connectivity that is so critical to achieving happiness at an individual level. Yeah. And I think I think that takes a drain too. That a lot of people come to Denmark, thinking this is the happiest country on earth. Why am I not feeling happy? Why can't mm-hmm. I not connect into this huge spirit? And maybe you could say a little bit about your experience with this when you had to build up your network from scratch and kind of the different emotions that you felt going through this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it is really hard. So, I mean, this morning, just for example, I had to make sure that five people got to the right places. And it was just a sort of logistical nightmare. And certainly if I'd had, you know, an extended family network here, that would not have been the case. But I think as an expatriate, whether you're in Denmark or anywhere, the friendships you make become more important and more intense more quickly because you are reliant on each other to be your pseudo family, really. So... I think that although it is challenging, and I you know I, I speak to my Danish neighbors, and life does seem easier for them in many respects. Mm. I think that the payoff for us right now with very small children is still worth it it 's still living Danishly still means that we have this work life balance that enables us to figure things out and socialize more and to invest in these relationships. If I was living in London, then I moved to a part of the UK, for example, where I didn't know anyone, it would be just as hard. So I think it's just living somewhere different. You know, at least my family are only in the UK. Family, people I speak to with family in Australia or in the US, for example, as you must experience, that's even more of a challenge. That's even further. So no, it's not as easy as I guess people who have their support network more locally find it. But if you invest in the friendships, which it's easier to do living Danishly, then I think it's possible. It's sort of workable, I'd
0: say. Now, were, were you able to build up a network both of fellow expatriates and Danes? Or what, was there any difference in that approach or the level of difficulty?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And there's been lots of research about the fact that because Danes go to school with the same people for 10 years, these really deep friendships develop so that, you know, but by the time they reach adulthood, they often feel like they don't need any more friends. They have their close knit network. And it's just as hard for Danes relocating to another part of the country as adults for work to get to know their neighbours as often it is for expats. So a lot of my Danish friends, for example, have moved from a different part of Denmark. So they are also new to the area because otherwise, I guess people have their really close network unless it's a very special friendship forged over many years. And probably with pretty good Danish language skills on the expats part, then I think that's quite tricky. So I'd say... I'd say I have a pretty good mix, but most of my Danish friends tend to be people who have relocated from elsewhere. And that's why they have opened up their social circle to let some nosy British woman in it.
0: (laughs) I think you've identified that kind of double-edged sort of contentedness where if you've gone to the same school for 10 years and you've been in your local area you have your equation for happiness so there's no there's not that growth mentality that I need to experiment or open up for this new person or new way of being because I'm basically content and I think that that is a fundamental barrier for expatriates breaking into a lot of Danish circles. Yeah. I, um, I had a new year's resolution back in 2017
2: to meet a new Dane for coffee every day for a year at uh, working oh my day, word. How um, interesting. which oh, it works really quite well. But um, and it sounds to me like you've kind of inadvertently had a similar experience. Uh, you've arrived and then you've spoken to lots and lots of people, yeah. be it um, for research in different countries. What I find speaking to a lot of expats is that is some have almost hit pause like I'm coming here for just a two year contract and what I'm seeing is that people are kind of have this pause effect of their life and I'm wondering if you think that a huge part of your your happiness has been that outreach and that's something that you would advise for people when they get here
1: I think so. I think there's only ever something to be gained from opening yourself up and meeting new people. But I would say that growing up in the suburbs of London, it was ever thus. Like certainly, I mean, maybe not in rural places like I live in rural Uland, but living near London, growing up in the 80s and 90s, there were people coming to my school who were just there for two years. And they integrated to a degree, but they also, you know, learned a bit about the culture, you pay the taxes, I kind of think that's okay. I personally like to find out more about the place where I am and, and find out more about the people around me. But I, I do think there's something to be said by the fact that if you come to Denmark, you probably are more in tune with the Scandinavian model. You are probably more left-leaning because you're happy to share your, your money. Money is not the most important thing to you. And if you're paying your taxes, you know you are still contributing. So I feel like many expats get a really hard time about that. And I think, in my experience and, and from speaking all around the country and, and speaking to people for the books, people do want to integrate and they do their best. But if they're just here for two years, you, as you say, there is a limit to what is going to be possible.
0: Now, Helen, we're speaking to you remotely and you are over in Weile, Denmark, mm-hmm. which is uh, for our audience in the Jutland, is it Peninsula? Yeah, it'll be a Peninsula, yeah. area of Denmark. I guess you originally went to Bielund because of the proximity to your husband's job at Lego. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what, we actually. How did you end up in? Yeah, how did you end up in?
1: How did I end up here? Well, yeah. so we arrived and we've been living in London, uh, Zone Two, full on, proper London, and we thought, well, it's never going to be like that. So we actually lived not in Billund, in an even more remote place, which I'm loath to name because there's only about two people who live there, and they all know who <laughs> I am. So I call it sort of Sticksville on in the book, and everyone seemed okay with that. Um, but we lived in really the middle of nowhere, and there were no other non-Danes around. And so that was the first couple of years. And then we relocated to Vila because I work from home, and it was quite isolating. It was nice to be able to sort of walk to a coffee shop rather than just walking into the sea that was literally the closest thing I had for entertainment where I was and we chose Viola I guess instead of Billund because we like the fact that Viler is international you know it's a Danish town with a normal kind of Danish life going on around us whereas Billund has so many internationals now it's um it's such a big Lego is such a big employer there that that's wonderful and for people who are pressing pause on their life and who are popping in and popping out and it's great for kids there but my husband as anyone who has read anything I've ever written might know is obsessed with design and loves shopping and is just very taken with the whole Danish way of life. So he likes being in a town that's very beautiful, it's got great architecture, it's got great you know it's got facilities, it's got art galleries. so we wanted really to be a part of a community and to be a part of that so for us this is great this is perfect
0: that's really interesting and what's the picture over there in terms of diversity because ed and i were we're based in copenhagen and i'm sure that's a little different reality than what you're used to over there
1: yeah and I, I guess and it's certainly not as diverse as i encountered when i was in london but it's changed since i've been here i would say i think you know you do see people from different backgrounds, from all over the world. And researching my latest book, I was able to pretty easily speak to people or get in touch with people from places all over the world because they were nearby or they knew someone. And I think that's growing a little bit. So I think that's been really interesting to see that diversity and it becoming a little more cosmopolitan. Excellent.
0: Excellent. That's Really good news.
2: Can you tell us, a uh, to pivot a little, could you tell us a little bit about your novel, Gone Viking?
1: Yes, certainly. So When I, another spoiler alert, after thinking I was not going to be able to have any children, I uh, had a little boy in Denmark and then I got pregnant with twins, which was a complete surprise and not something I expected. But I am quite a small woman and twins are quite big. So I was on bed rest for a very long time. And if I wasn't on bed rest, I was in a wheelchair and I could not run or jump or move my body. And from my time Being in Denmark, I had just encountered this very different way of being a woman in Denmark than I had experienced in London. And especially from my work, I worked in women's magazines and fashion magazines for years and years. And here it seemed that to be a woman meant being strong and not being frail and thin, as you see elsewhere, when I used to go to the fashion weeks in Milan or Paris or London. In Denmark, it was about being strong. And so I became very interested in this. And also a lot of the myths around Vikings, that whenever I said, oh, I live in Denmark, people would say, oh, Vikings, horned helmets. And just this idea that Vikings were marauding and pillaging. And of course, they were doing that. But essentially, they they were also doing... They're they're not
0: over in Viola right now.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, this idea that, that all they were were these sort of aggressive men in horned helmets. I just sort of had enough of and I felt like setting the record straight and I was bedridden uh, for a lot of the time and so wanted to exercise my mind, I guess, in a way that I couldn't for my body. So I started researching into, you know, modern day Vikings and and what might they look like and traditional Viking skills. And whilst I was still able to, I went to Reba and the Viking Center there and I spoke to people from Roskilde about navigation and looked into Viking boat building and Viking axe throwing. I mean, seeing someone five months pregnant with twins doing Viking axe throwing is a sight to behold. But I started doing all this research and thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting? I wonder if there is a way to almost communicate what it means to be a Viking nowadays and what people in the rest of the world could learn from, I guess, the more soft skills of Vikings. So they were great at democracy. They were great at craft. They were tradespeople and really getting that across. And so, yeah, I wrote my debut novel. So I went into fiction, which was interesting because I'd been so used to journalistic approach and going with research quite a lot. And although I still had that, suddenly it was all in my head. So that was really interesting to, to write that and, and make my characters run and jump when I couldn't and look at four women on a Scandinavian retreat, learning to be more Viking and just how you can really push your body and how far you can go and, and what that does to your mind, really.
2: So it's kind of a a faction book with a a fiction story with the origin of Viking values and brought into the modern days.
1: Yes, I guess so. I often I used to describe it as a sort of a feminist city slickers. But then I had it reminded (laughs) to me by a lot of my quite young millennial publishing team that millennials had no idea what the film City Slickers was, which made me feel very old. So, um, (laughs) yes. You, you have to see, you have to read and then just tell me how you describe it.
0: All right, we will be sure to take a look at that. Helen, you are obviously a gifted communicator. Could you tell our audience what you would say are the keys to communication in terms of getting a message across?
1: Wow, goodness, uh, good question. I recently gave a talk to 11 and 13 year olds, which was fascinating because there is no filter and they will just say what they think. And sometimes it's space cadet, crazy and sometimes it's incredibly insightful and honest in a way that you're not expecting but they asked a similar question and I'm not sure that I have a perfect answer I think for me I am inherently nosy I'm inherently curious about the world around me and any shyness that I have and nervousness magically melts away when it's in a work context. So I will force myself out of my comfort zone when I feel like it's for a purpose, when I feel like it's for work. And this has slowly rubbed off, I guess, into my personal life so that I can go up to the stranger at the party and strike up conversation because I've I've learned to do it and I've learned the skills to help it happen. And I also, I've learned how valuable it is that even when you're feeling unsure, there's always someone else in the room who's more unsure than you. And I think as an expat, you're often in new situations with new people and there'll always be somebody who's who's more frightened than you. And if you can make them feel a little bit better or make them feel a little more secure or just give them a friendly smile or say something friendly, I think that's helpful. And I also have a very low... Shame threshold these days. I think children do that to you, but I don't mind about looking like a fool. That's not a concern of mine. I don't care about looking cool anymore. And I think enthusiasm is a much underrated human quality. So if I can make something good happen, I will and strike up conversation. And I'm not too worried about looking foolish.
2: So curiosity is the the antidote to shyness.
1: I think so. I, yeah, and I, shyness is a big is a big thing, and it is very it can feel crippling. And I, I understand that. But I think remembering that someone else is more scared than you is, is quite helpful.
0: Alan, we're gonna have one more question here and then take a quick break. When was it that in your mind, Denmark became home?
1: Oh, interesting. Yes, you
0: came as an expatriate. Mm. And then at some point, something clicked and you said this, this is my home.
1: I think as probably in common with many of your listeners and the people that you speak to, it's it's often on a flight back from your motherland. So after a year here, we planned to be here for a year. And then actually, I wasn't able to travel because I was pregnant. And then suddenly, we kind of seemed like such an upheaval to try and move anywhere with a small child. When you first become a parent, you're overwhelmed by the amount of stuff you have to take everywhere. And so we just didn't go anywhere for a while and then i think we went back to the uk when you're a sort of guest in your home country again it's a strange feeling it's been well documented but there's a sense of i don't know where i belong and Mm. when you're being a guest at someone's house for example because you don't have a home back in that place anymore so you're having to say oh please can i is it my turn to use the bathroom or can i make a cup of tea and then you get back to the house where you live now and everything is your own and it has your things in it and you feel a sense of relief i guess that's when it starts to feel like home so i'm not sure i could pinpoint a date but maybe sometime in the second year it's sort of felt like home
0: wonderful well helen we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with the second half of our interview with some quick fire questions for you
1: okay perfect
2: So we are back with our quick fire round. The questions will be quick fire. Your answers certainly don't need to be. Helen, <laughs> okay. you mentioned experiencing something to akin to burnout at 33 before moving to Denmark. Have you put into place any habits, routines or rituals to, to better look after your health now you've moved to Denmark?
1: Mm, I think... Yes. I mean, I, w- I walk every day and if I don't, I I feel a little uh, wobbly. And I am much better, I think, with comparison anxiety than I used to be. I'm still not perfect. I touch wood as I say it, but I guess I'm better. And maybe this would have come anyway with, with having children or getting older, but if there is somebody whose social media feed suddenly makes me feel pretty bad about my own life, then I stop and I unfollow them and, and that's that done. I think the work-life balance here helps. I don't work weekends anymore, I don't work evenings anymore. And that's sort of normal here, so I don't feel like an outlier. That feels like part of how you live here. So I think that helps a lot.
0: Helen, I can hear that you are clearly an emotionally intelligent person. As we talked about before, you're not trying to dismiss those feelings of sadness or of fear and anger, but really tap into what it means. But are there any character traits that you have that you wrestle with that you have to regulate to be at uh, top performance?
1: Wow, that's a question for a morning. Um, <laughs> Good morning. I think, yes, of course. I mean, we all do, don't we? I think, you know, imposter syndrome and insecurity and feeling like I should be doing more all the time when actually there is a there's a finite amount of energy that I have and there are a finite number of hours in the day so so yes just the same everybody has their demons and everybody has their baggage I guess that's very kind of you to say that I'm slightly more emotionally literate than perhaps I was at 33 but I think it's just being aware of these things and, and the intellectual knowledge isn't enough you have to practice them as well and so I guess I've I've spent the last six years really looking at, at happiness practices and the science of it all And trying to put it into practice and seeing what cultures do what better. Excellent.
2: Your book, The Atlas of Happiness, 33 different value based uh, based on creating more happiness. Which ones of those have you really taken to heart and adopted into your life?
1: I'm really trying with the Italian dolce far niente, which is the sweetness of doing nothing, which is kind of radical in its simplicity because most of us seek out relaxation by maybe drinking too much at weekends or going on an annual escape, whereas Italians are very good at spreading it out through the minutes, days, months throughout the year. They relax into the chaos rather than fighting it. And that is not something that comes naturally to me at all. So I'm trying to run towards that. I'm very, very poor at doing nothing, but I'm trying to get better at relaxation. Italian style. I think the Norwegian idea of free live or free air life where you have to get outdoors, you have to earn your lunch that's something that feels important. I certainly feel better if I've moved my body in some way for mental health as much as for how it makes you look but if I've moved my body in some way I feel like I can really enjoy you know, my conversations with friends or my lunch or my sleep, It, it, it improves everything and then I think as we were talking about feeling the unhappy feelings as well as feeling the happy feelings, the Portuguese concept of sodaji or um, a nostalgia or reminiscing for uh, a happiness that once was, or even a happiness you merely hoped for. I find that very powerful because scientists have shown that if we allow ourselves to feel these moments of melancholy, I guess, these moments where you we think, well, could life have turned out all right if we'd ended up with our first love or if we had taken that job, or those moments which often we push down and think, well, I shouldn't worry about that, or that we overthink or we give too much time to actually just acknowledging them as part of life, grieving for them, mourning for them if we need to, and then moving on is a way to keep our heads clearer and to keep our mental health and our well-being in a better place. So I tried to be mindful of that now, just sort of riding the waves of emotions rather than trying to push them down and think, not now, not now, just keep busy, keep going. Yeah, so I, those are three big ones for me.
0: Excellent. Helen, can you tell us something weird about you that may be uh, <laughs> disclosed in your books?
1: Oh, um, now let me think. Um, and I'm a terrible. I am terrible at eating chocolate at all of the hours of the day. I hmm, Something I haven't disclosed. That's a tricky one. Four books in. I think, cool. well, my mother has just been to stay and she's brought over my pair of first shoes, which apparently were a pair of Lancashire clogs. These quite oh. alarming wooden and uh, red leather uh, numbers that people, children <laughs> used to wear to nursery school, So, which seems very sort of industrial revolution. But apparently this is what people wore in those days. So, so yeah, that, that, those were my first shoes. So are, my are
0: you going to bring those back into fashion here in Vila in 2019?
1: Well, I'm not sure I can squeeze my feet into you, but I'm <laughs> certainly going to see if my daughter can tap out a few numbers. There with you it. Go.
2: Helen, if you were invited to a dinner party and you could invite just two people from history, alive or dead, who would you invite and why?
1: Oh, well, I'm always very fond of Mary Stopes. I think she could do some high fives Um, who, you know, really helped with women's birth control and therefore helped women to be able to control the size of their families, I guess. And so that they could... Give the children; they did have a little bit more love and uh, enabled women to work. I guess in in many ways, I think. Hmm, who else am I interested by? I mean, just so many. I'm reading the Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls at the moment, mm. and there are there are sort of things like. I think she's called Grace O'Malley. There's an Irish pirate, one of the first female pirates, and she sounds like she's had a fascinating life. She ended up, I think she was called in by Queen Elizabeth I to be reprimanded, but actually charmed her, and they ended up getting on and kind of becoming friends. And I love this idea of these two kind of fiery redheads at the time, just sort of having a great conversation and finding mutual ground. So yeah, that's three. That's no help, is it at all? Maybe I'll have Grace O'Malley and Mary.
0: (laughs) Helen, did you have a teacher or mentor when you were younger that has most influenced your
1: life? I had some great English teachers, which is always helpful for a writer, um, and I had... I had a history teacher called Mrs. Monroe, who's sadly no longer with us, but she was amazing. And I was always quite curious. And I must have been a nightmare to teach because we did mock GCSEs and I answered a question on something we hadn't studied yet, just because I thought, well, that looks interesting. And she was very patient with me and sort of tempered the curiosity and the willingness to learn new things with actually the discipline and dedication to get better at the things that I had already studied. And that's been really helpful because as a writer, you have to have the creative ideas and... And the impulse to find out more, but you also have to have the editor and the critic, and the person who is a bit more studious and comes out with the red pen. And so, those two sides of my personality and of my work ethic, I guess, have uh, have been incredibly important and is something that I use every day. So, yes, Mrs. Monroe has I'm been. I'm sure in. Mrs.
0: Monroe would be proud of you with the work you've produced. It's oh, excellent.
1: I can only hope so.
2: We have just one final question for you, Han. What book or books have you most gifted or been influenced by?
1: Oh, now I tend to give books quite a lot because that's always what I want as a present. So I'm hoping that people get the hint. Me too. So yes, I mean, goodness, I mean, that's spa vouchers and books. That's all I ever need. People think I'm difficult to buy for. I mean, I don't know why. Um, what are the last books I've given to people? I tend to give people the good night stories for rebel girls actually quite a lot, be they grown up or child, male or female. Um, I think that's really interesting to sort of look back at lessons from history that many of us may have forgotten. And also the way certainly I learned history at school was fairly limited. You'd learn time periods, but that means you might have a massive gap. So I'm pretty good on medieval history, but I know very little about early modern, for example. Darren Brown's Happy, I think, is an extraordinary achievement. I think he's amazing. And he's got a beautiful way with words and a way of distilling the advice and wisdom of philosophers throughout the years. So probably those two.
2: That sits on my shelf too.
0: Excellent. Well, Helen, we're very mindful of your time. But before we go, is there anything you would like to promote or tell the audience where they can find you? Or perhaps uh, one final message for our audience on how uh, someone like you can contribute to the Danish society?
1: Those are some very big questions. Uh, you, you can find me at Ms. Helen Russell, Ms. Helen Russell, MS, uh, Helen Russell uh, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And I'm doing a TED Talk at Odense on the 13th of April. I'd love to see as many of you there as I can. And the Atlas of Happiness has just come back into stock. It's just had a, a reprint. So I'd love people to have a read that and let me know any happiness concepts they think I have missed. In terms of ways of living Danishly, I guess it's just being open, being open to new ideas And that kind of goes to the Danes too. When I speak to Danish companies, it's being open to see what you can learn because we all have so much to learn from each other, and it's mostly a positive. So we should all be doing a little bit more of that.
0: Well, Helen, on behalf of Ed and I, it's been a true pleasure, and I don't know if you have any other new works uh, in progress, but uh, you're welcome on the podcast anytime to uh, tell us how everything's going and any new projects.
1: Thank you so much. It's been lovely to speak to you both.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. And to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe and help us continue to grow as we try to drive conversations that open Denmark up to the world and the world to Denmark. See you next week on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up your printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.